If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And it is really good to see you today. If you are with us for the first time or for the first time in a long time, uh, Jared and I have spent lots of time wrestling with, processing what it means for us to consider all that it is to be the church. And how we, as people who are part of the church, are united with fellow believers from throughout the history of space and time. And what you may notice is there are certain things that we do in services now that are a little bit different. For, for instance, you may notice that Danny read a prayer. And that may be weird or awkward or uncomfortable for you for someone to read a prayer because you are, for whatever reason, uh, really connected with the prayers that come from our heart like rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God. We, we look at what God has done throughout history so that we can see how he has united uh, people. Another thing, for instance, that we uh, have really been moving us towards is a more consistent taking of communion. Because as we consistently take communion, we're reminded of the idea that the broken body and shed blood of Jesus are the hope of the world. And the Bible points us to that. That we consider that, that we think about that, that our hearts are aligned with that. Now, it, that's for those of us who come from what's called a low church tradition. Have you heard that phrase before? That's not bad. It just means that... We come from a tradition that doesn't necessarily uh, elevate these liturgical elements. And some of you may come from a high church tradition. Uh, you may come from a tradition that has a, a liturgy. So it's weird for you when people sing a song and other people clap. That may be different. It may be strange. So for us, we're not really low church or high church in the same way that Tolkien talks about Middle Earth, we're kind of middle church, and that's what we shoot for. So, uh, in that vein, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Jared, our worship pastor, is not here today. We had a disagreement about the most important, vital text in the book of Ephesians. I believe it's chapter 2. He believes it's chapter 4. And that's why he's not here. <laughs> it's a joke. He's celebrating... With his brother-in-law, who is, uh, who's been with us a lot, Josh Rieger, Presbyterian pastor in Beaumont. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go there. Feel free to read along with me before I get myself in more trouble. And you, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. In which you previously walked according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and, and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ Jesus even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not from work, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This is a well-known, very popular text. And at some point, if you have any interaction with facilities like this, you have heard this text presented. You may have memorized this text. If you were like me as a child, they had you hold your Bible and act as if it were a sword to draw swords. This is a verse, this is a passage that we know. And it starts in a really unique place. It starts by talking about spiritual death. And if I'm giving you a big idea, so I've been in church much of my life. And I have been around churches much of my life. Churches like ours, churches that are in a more traditional model. I have spent much of my time in in pews. And for whatever reason, the Lord chose to upgrade me to these cushy, cushy chairs. And I'm thankful for that. And I have noticed as we have wrestled with what it means to to be the church, to know the church, to to examine the church. But this is simple Bible. This is Christianity 101. Our big idea is Jesus saves us. Jesus does that. Now, let me walk you through the things that he does, and we'll see them in this passage. Jesus saves us from a disastrous direction. You see that in verses 1 through 3. Jesus saves us through spectacular grace. You see that in 4 through 7. And in 8 through 10, you see that Jesus saves us for in an unbelievable purpose. Jesus has done the work of saving. And we should turn our attention to him because we are a people in need of salvation. We are people who need to be saved. And we are people who need to be reminded that he is continually in the work of saving us. Jesus saves us. And he doesn't just save us from a bad place, he saves us from a dead place. I I spend a decent amount of my life over the last 15 years uh, speaking at events for teenagers and sometimes really it it involves more carbohydrates and calories than I should probably lean into. It also involves me going on rafting trips from time to time. And I've shared that with some of my friends in here before. I, I have had situations where they said, hey, we're going to go raft. I don't want to go raft. I want to do anything but raft. There was one situation in particular where we're going to go on this rafting trip and as we're driving from our facility to the place where we're going to raft called the Ocoee, anybody ever rafted in here? Okay, great. I'm, you guys look like the people who would be great for this. And as we're moving, the kids are having a conversation as to who goes in what boat. Now, whenever I'm in a situation like this, I look around and find the person who looks the strongest because I feel like in my boat, I should have five really strong people. You may be a person who says brains over brawn. That's not necessarily for me when it includes someone saving my life. So I need someone who grunts more, thinks less. That's what I need. I find five football players, and I'm going to be in the boat with them. However, they had already found a sixth football player. So as I'm sitting there looking at these kids, having a conversation, it hits me, well, I guess I'll go do what chubby people do, and I'll sit and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, and while I'm thinking through that, five cheerleaders look at me, and they said, hey, why don't you come be in our boat? That's not the boat for me, really. But they needed a, a sixth person, and I thought, I'll be the sixth person in this boat. So they yay, yay, yayed me, and we went, began to walk over to the place where they're handing out your protective gear. 
they hand you a vest, and we've all worn the vest if we've ever been in one of these places. Uh, they gave us a helmet. It gets really real when they hand you a helmet. They hand us a paddle. And while they're handing us these things, there comes the point where the young lady who is telling us what to do tells us how to save ourselves, how to have saved the person in your boat if they fall over and get in the rapids. And she lets them know, and she lets me know, if someone falls out of your boat, you are to reach over the side of the boat, grab them by the vest, and pull them back in the boat. Simple enough. In that moment, one of these little cheerleaders looks at me and she said, Hey, no offense. Let me help you guys. Just for the sake of vernacular, if you are leading into any conversation with no offense you are inevitably about to offend whomever you're talking to. She said, no offense, but how much do you weigh? I said, enough to sink you. They put us in a boat that smelled like the inside of a foot. I'm not a boat, in a bus that smelled like the inside of a foot. We're driving up this mountain to where the rapids start. And as we're driving, they're introducing us to raft guides. Raft guides are people who have foregone living in real houses to live in lean-tos for the entirety of the summer. And they eat peanut butter and jelly out of the palm of their hands. They are a very unique crew altogether. My raft guide's name was Moses because they told me he could part the water. When we get out of the boat and we're grab the bus and we're grabbing our, our rafts, Moses looks at me and he sees that I am the grown man in the boat with these five small people. And he said, Hey! And I said, Hey! There's a rock in the water. I'm going to make sure the boat hits the rock and I'm going to send all five of them out of the boat. But you need to fall back. So we're in, the, we're in the boat heading down the water and, and they're all paddling a different direction but Moses is paddling the, this other direction toward the rock which means that they were doing nothing whatsoever. He taps me on the shoulder and said, hey, and I said, hey, and I fall back in the boat. He hits this rock. All five cheerleaders go flying out of the boat symmetrically. Spirit fingers flying everywhere. And they all begin to chant and cheer, help me, help me, you've got to help me. And I go into rescue mode. I lean over the side of the boat and grab person number one and pull her back in the boat. I grab person number two, pull her back in the boat. I reach over for person number three and say, no offense. I reach... <laughs> I get all of them back in the boat. For much of what we've taught about Christianity, we have said that we are people in a dire situation in need of help. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are not people who are in distress in need of a rescue. We are dead people who need life. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. It's a disastrous direction in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. This ruler of the pattern of the air, this is the accuser, this is the great Satan, this is uh, the one who sows disbelief in the people. And the idea of the power of the air, it literally breaks down in the original language, foggy haze. 
There is someone who rules the foggy haze that caused everyone to be running in wrong directions. Paul says, that's the world that you lived in. And left to your own devices, that's the, the place you were going to be. It was where you would settle. One theologian says, we live in a world where human beings left to themselves not only choose the wrong direction, but we remain cheerfully confident that it is the right one. Have you been there? Certain of your certainty in contradiction to God's hope. Running the direction that you've chosen for the sake that you have chosen, for the reason that you have chosen it. There's the one who rules this foggy haze, this Satan. It reminds me of what takes place when we get up in Lake Jackson and sometimes you notice there's a bog that sits on the ground and I cannot see in front of me. It's a, it's a haze that's there. But I know, or at least I think that I know the path that I'm driving because I've driven my neighborhood so often. But from time to time, I'll find myself on a curb where I'm not supposed to be. Because I think what's best in the midst of this haze, the writer Paul says about this place, this ruler of the pattern of the air, he is settled. There is darkness. There is despair. He is the accuser. He is working against God and working against God's mission. Yet we trust in this world. We place our hope in this world. Paul goes on to say, Paul goes on to say that we are by nature children of wrath or children under wrath. That's how this translation reads. We get lost in the weeds of Bible conversations. This is the verse that that happens. There are, these, there are rational, good faith discussions taking place here, there, and everywhere about what original sin is and what predestination is and what double predestination is that come from this verse in particular. But those, though they are helpful for us to think through, they are not the ultimate point of the text. The point of the text is really clear. Sin and death have provided an intoxicating, inescapable gloom that are both our end and will lead us toward that end over. Over and over and over. We are under wrath. It is over us. There is no help for us in and of ourselves because the wrath has settled. It has blinded and shaded everything. Verse 4. But God. I have one pastor friend who says that I will lean toward my low church tradition. He, he says, if it were not for that butt, I don't know where my butt would be. But God, who is rich in mercy. You have a we were and we are in this text. One through three, we were dead. We were enslaved. We were objects of wrath. We were walking among the disobedient. We were under Satan's dominion. Now you move to four through seven where it tells us who we are, what we are. And for those of us who are believing people in a space like this, who have faith in the person of Jesus, who are living as the, uh, the people of God in a world empowered by God for the purpose of God, would you not hear who you were, but would you know who you are? Because the Bible tells you who you are. And for those of you who are not in the person of Jesus, I want you to hear me say the Bible also tells you who you are. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, and for whatever reason you chose Labor Day of 2022 to be the first time you showed up in this joint, 
The Bible teaches that you were dead, you were enslaved, you were objects under wrath. You walked among the disobedient. You were under the dominion of Satan himself. You were confused, misled, and you were hopeless all the while thinking that you knew the right direction and were full of hope. You were. That's who you are if you're not in Jesus. However, God does something really great in this text and in our lives, and I don't want us to miss it. In Christ, we are alive. We are enthroned. We are objects of grace. We are fellowshipping with Christ, and we are unified with Christ who is over all This is who the believing people are. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ Jesus even though we were dead. Paul returns us to who you are in your own power. You didn't crawl out of it. This passage is one where we are not people who see that we are... We're not floating... And in need of help, we are dead at the bottom of a river and we need someone to intervene on our behalf. That's what Jesus does. And when Jesus intervenes, it is not just him telling you, you can do it. He tells you, you can't. It is not him saying, make sure that you puff puff on your little lungs. You don't have lungs that function. Jesus breathes life where there was none and offers hope where there is none. That's who Jesus is. We are rich in mercy. God had compassion for those who were in need, and that's you. That's me. We are in need of hope. And it's this massive contrast, because you notice there's genuine repentance does not happen in this text if God does not enable it. We can't even acknowledge that we're under wrath if God does not bring illumination to our situation. I did not even mean for that to rhyme. He has raised us up with Him. And He has seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He has done this and we have not seen anything yet. He is going to do so much more, immeasurably more, overwhelmingly more. God at work because he is rich in mercy. God has saved us and he is also saving us. God doesn't just save you to himself, he keeps you in himself. It is the work of Jesus that maintains your salvation. It is Christ in the presence of God interceding for you right now that causes your salvation to hold. It's not a matter of me or you looking at our situation and saying to ourselves, you know what, Jesus saved me and I'm going to hold on to it. You don't hold on to salvation, it holds on to you. That's what scripture teaches us over and over. When you read through the text, you'll notice God gets all of the action words and Jesus does the work. The point is that by grace, we are with, caps lock, with Christ. Christ is raised from the dead, and we are raised from death with Christ. Since we are with Christ, we share all the blessings of God that are connected to Christ. If you look at what Paul says in Romans, this is not what I typically do, but we'll just go there. Romans chapter 6, we live with Christ. Romans chapter 8 says that because we are with Christ, our standing with Christ comes in that we are now predestined, called, justified, glorified. God doing the work of keeping us with him. God 
is for you. He's for you, believer. He is for you. And if we lose sight of that, we have lost sight of what holds our salvation in place. God is for you more than you are against Him. He just is. He just is. Because Jesus does this work of keeping us. He saves us by this spectacular grace. Showing mercy to people who need mercy. Giving hope to people who need hope. Removing the bog. So that we can see the illumination of God on our lives. The light that he has provided for us to walk in. And the power to take the steps to do so. If you are hearing this and you're thinking to yourself. Man, it doesn't seem like I do a lot. That's the point. That's the point. The faith of the believer. God does this work in you. Saves us by spectacular grace. We also see that he saves us for an unbelievable purpose. Notice, Jesus saves us, and we see these three three ideas from this destruction. For, by his spectacular grace, and for an unbelievable purpose. Go with me. For you, for you, are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This passage has an echo of grace. And not just this passage. Paul as a whole has an echo of grace. 100 times in Paul's writing you see grace, grace, grace. He's very into grace. By grace you have been saved. And then you hear we are saved by grace, through faith. Paul then stops in this portion of the text and gives qualifiers. Not from works, so that no one can boast. Why do we need a qualifier for this text? The reason that we need him to stop and for us to translate that English thing that's there The reason that we need that is because everything inside of us is going to attempt to qualify our salvation by our own work and in our own merit. That is the natural inclination of the human heart. Our human hearts are continually returning to two things, to qualify or disqualify. The first is this, we return to pride over and over and over. How good we are, how smart we are, how funny we are, how educated we are, how clever we are, how we don't do what this person does. We don't say what that person says. We don't act the way that person acts. We don't, we're not that person. We don't post what that person posts. We are awesome and we should be full of pride, which is functioning as if we are still under this fog and smog. Paul eliminates that qualifier of the believer... When he says to you, this is not from your works. The other end of the conversation is yet another qualifier. 
Because we will notice that we say how good we are or maybe you're in the place where you have disqualified yourself because of how bad you are. We see pride being something that we elevate ourselves and we see shame being something we use to disqualify ourselves. Paul eliminates the good works that you could do but he also is saying your bad mess... What's taking place is do not believe that your wickedness could cancel out the goodness of God. It doesn't. For the believing person, the hope of the world is Jesus. And you may say to yourself, I say worse things than him. I I do worse things than her. I post terrible things like that person. I'm just so wicked. How could God ever love me? And we use our situations and circumstances that are coming around us to ask that over and over. How could God ever love a person like me? How could God love a person who does the things that I do? Not by works is not just saying to the pride-filled heart, you don't get to save yourself. It's saying to the shame-filled heart, I'm the one who does. Not me, Jesus. Jesus says this to us. We are returning to this. And we think to ourselves that, that what we do may be what maintains our salvation. And it's just not. It is the power of God through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus by the power of His Spirit that holds our faith together. One commentator says this, Even though the future still brings an attack from hostile powers. I'm going to pronounce it hostile because I think it sounds cool. The saints are nevertheless equipped to enjoy their freedom to render an effective good testimony, and to do what is good. We notice in the text, we did walk in transgressions. We did walk in sin. If you cannot admit that, you are still doing so. But now we walk in good works. Salvation is not because of works, but salvation, the work of Jesus, should lead to good works. The works that we do are the fruit of God saving us. They are not the root of it. What we do as believing people, when we look at those who are hurting, is a display that there was, is one who will come alongside and meet needs. When we grieve with people who are grieving, we are saying there is one who offers hope in the face of that despair. When we look at a situation and a scenario and we say this does not have to be your end because Jesus can be your beginning, we are living out the hope and the good works of this text. This is us seeing that God has done a unique thing to graft us into his plan. It's the language of Micah chapter 6 verse 8. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's Jesus telling us to, to, to love the Lord our God in Mark. And in Matthew, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which is also found in the book of Deuteronomy, what's called the Shema. But is Jesus going as far to include Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 to say that the Shema at work is to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the action of God toward us. So every Sunday for us, if you're a believer in the room, we consistently we take communion. We are going to consistently point you to broken bodies, shed blood of Jesus as the hope of the world. The reason that we would take the wafer, that we would drink of the juice, the reason that we do those things is to remind ourselves that 
the person who stands in front of you is not this ultimate sage to which many of you are saying, duh. But our hope is Jesus. His shed blood. His broken body. Those are where God... This is how God says to me, I'm going to remove the fog by interceding on your behalf. I'm going to give life where there is none. Show grace where none was deserved. Hope where there was none to be found. That's what I'm going to do. We celebrate that. We celebrate that because Jesus took our sin upon himself. Jesus shed his blood for our sake. Jesus died a death that we should have died because this passage, as do many, reminds us that death is present and death sits on us. And Jesus has removed that so that we can be people who are not saved by works, but for works. That God has set in motion. I love the text that we, when you read this. It says you are, Ephesians 2.10, you are his workmanship. For every believer in the room, God works on you. Never stops working on you. But He doesn't just see you as this difficult process that He he can't quite get a handle on. The work of God on the life of me, of a believer, of me and of you, There's one translation that reads that you are a masterpiece of God. And that has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the one who's working. You have been, you are being carved out by God into what he would have you to be. God is directing you toward the life he would have you to live. All the while seeing you as a masterpiece because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So, for those of us who come into a room and we are full of pride, we call ourselves believers and we believe that we are believers, but pride has caused us to be motivated in our spiritual walk. Would you step off of that pedestal and realize that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of your own works? And would every one of us who comes into a space like this full of shame and guilt just realize that, that God is lifting you from that dark, gloomy place and he is elevating you to a situation where he says to you, you are a masterpiece who has been enthroned by me. You matter. You matter. If believing people would hear consistently that God thinks that we matter, how would that impact our world? Because you matter to God. You do. He, he views you as a treasure. He, he delights in. You matter to him. You are a masterpiece. So here's what I want us to do this morning. You, with your heads bowed. I just want you to wrestle with this where you are. In the way that you need to wrestle with this. If you lean into pride. And you have qualified yourself as valuable before God. Because of whatever good you think you've done. Would you be reminded that it's not of works, no matter how much you want to boast? If you're a believer in this room who hears this passage and you just say, you just don't know how bad I've been, would you hear Jesus saying to you, you are a masterpiece, you matter to me. You matter, you matter, you matter. And as you wrestle on both of those, in both of those ways, I would invite you to t- come take the cup 
take the bread and to celebrate what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. Because all of our salvation culminates in the crucified, resurrected Jesus. And we take this cup and we drink of the juice because of Him, not to forget all that He has done for us. I'm in, the, I'm, in the, I'm in my right-hand corner of the room. If you need me to pray with you, to pray for you, feel free. I'd love to do that. Jesus, I thank you for these men, these women who are here. For every one of us who find value in us, would you convict us of our sin? Would every one of us, Lord, would every one of us who find misery and our shame, would you convict us of that and, and just let us hear you saying that we are created by you, Jesus, for good works that you prepared from the very beginning? Thank you, Jesus, for all that you do for us. We love you. We're grateful. We ask it in your name.